0: Well, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, we're so happy that you're here. And uh, and as uh, Shannon said earlier, we are so happy for all that Jesus has done for us. Um, We're in a series of messages during this Lenten season called Give It Up! And these weights here on this cross represent all of what God is calling us to give up to Him, give up your shame, give up your anger, uh, give up your grudges. Uh, And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture where we are called to give up the world. Our Scripture today is in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. You'll find that on page 878 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please uh, take that copy that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from this church family. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. It's Palm Sunday. This passage of Scripture describes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And when he had said these things, that's Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has has need of it so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt its owners said to them why are you untying the colt and they said the lord has need of it and they brought it to jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt they set jesus on it and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near The very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's Word. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know how often you eat out in Champaign-Urbana, but recently, the Champaign-Urbana Public Health District, and by recently, I mean January 1, the Champaign-Urbana Public Health District began requiring restaurants to post the results of their most recent food inspections. Did you know this? Yes, you've been watching. And so you know that there's one of three notices uh, that, uh, you know, food service facilities, restaurants, and the like must post within five feet of the main entrance. One of three. The first is green, which is good. Green is good. Pass the inspection. That's good. The next one is yellow. Needs work needs work. And then there's the dreaded red placard. Yes, this place is done. I suppose notices like these put pressure on the owners to take the extra effort to make sure food safety is something certain. and, And it got me thinking, uh, how this type of public notification system might play out in other areas of life. For instance, let's say you uh, wanted to buy some merchandise at a retail store, and you go from the parking lot to the door, and there's one of these three signs. And based on merchandise quality or customer care, etc., that might inform your decision, would it not? Let's say you wanted to buy a car, and before you... Purchase your car. You go to the front door and you take a look at one of these three signs, and that might inform you. And what about the airline industry? Can you imagine just before boarding a plane, you see one of these three signs and make you think twice, wouldn't it? What about our colleges and universities? If there was some sort of inspection system uh, based on either graduation or job placement after graduation, and based on that, then you would get one of these three signs. I wonder. I wonder what that would do to education. And then there's churches. What if an inspector came and closely observed the level of love and passion that a congregation has for God and one another? What if the inspector reviewed the curriculum, investigating to see just how much of the Bible not only was taught but was learned and digested, and then put into play. I mean, is what's being taught actually what the author of the Scripture wanted to communicate? What? What if? What if one criteria was how missional or outwardly focused the congregation was? What if the part of the inspection process, the inspector came and sat among the Sunday gathering? What would that experience be like? Would it be an experience of joy, or would it be one of routine? Would there be a sense of prayer, a sense of anticipation. What is God going to do now? What would it be? And then, as a result of that evaluation and investigation, what if the church was required to post a placard within five feet of the main entrance, green, yellow, or red, so that everyone who walked in the front door could see with unmistakable clarity the results of the inspection? What if? Church family, we really can't grasp the significance of Palm Sunday without an appreciation for these public inspection notifications. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. In our Christian calendar, it's Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday, I fear, you know, has kind of become in the minds of. Midwestern Americans, this gleeful, spring-like, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? Kind of thing where you know, you know, the, this, the, the Galilean guy, our guy, has now come in to show off these Jerusalem urbanites, and so it's our turn now, kind of thing. And that's really not what we're looking at in Luke chapter nineteen. Because you see, Luke chapter 19, Palm Sunday is the day when the inspector appeared to examine and investigate and scrutinize the ministry of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. No small task in the Hebrew mind, the temple was the connecting place between heaven and earth. In the Hebrew mind, it was, it was the center of the universe. It was the most important geographical space in the universe. And here, the inspector has come to audit its activity, to evaluate it, and then to render a verdict, green, yellow, or red. That's what we're looking at here. Doesn't sound like a pep rally to me. It's an inspection. But not just any inspector. The royal inspector, the king himself, has arrived. And that's the point of Palm Sunday. That's it. That's the first question on your outline. What's the point of it all? The point of it is this. Israel's long-awaited king has Arrived. I mean, when you look at this passage of Scripture, uh, there's kingship all over it. Uh, I was fascinated as I was thinking through these verses here. Do you know seven of the 16 verses that we read deal with the acquisition of the cult? Almost 50% of this passage of Scripture deals with acquiring the colt for Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. Seven of these 16 verses, what is that about? Well, it's this cryptic thing almost, this almost scavenger hunt type of experience where Jesus says to two of the disciples, I want you to go into the village ahead of you. When you get to the village ahead of you, there's going to be a street. And on the street, you're going to find a colt. And it's not just any your colt. It's going to be a colt that no one has ever ridden yet. And it's going to be tied. And I want you to go get that colt. I want you to bring it back. Now, while you're untying that colt, there's a likelihood that someone will say, what are you doing with that colt? And you are to say these specific words. The Lord has need of it. Say that back to me. The Lord has need of it. That's very good. Now, go. They went. And that's exactly what happened. Seven verses. What is all of that about? Well, two observations. One has to do with Luke. This is eyewitness testimony. And isn't that what Luke told us that he would give us when he began his gospel? Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He Tells that he's going to be, he tells Theophilus, the the reader of this gospel, I've investigated carefully, I've interviewed eyewitnesses, and I've put together an orderly account of what's going on. And we can see that here in these seven verses. This is just specific eyewitness testimony. In other words, this really happened. He's not making this up. Why would he make this up? Why would he make this up? This is true stuff. But beyond Luke, the other observation has to do with Jesus himself. Because, you see, these verses show us that the triumphal entry Jesus' ride into Jerusalem was a carefully choreographed, event to communicate a very specific message, which was Israel's long-awaited king has arrived. Your king has come. I'm here. I'm here. I mean, every other time Jesus went into Jerusalem, he walked into the city along with the people. But here, takes a mount on a donkey, and he rides in. He's above the people. So it's a strategic time. There, Jerusalem has swelled. It's the, it's the high holy season in Judaism. It's the season of the Passover, Israel's most celebrated holy day, where they remembered God through Moses emancipating his people from Egyptian bondage, 400 years of Egyptian bondage. And, and how God, through his servant Moses, uh, worked miracles. Ten plagues upon Pharaoh to get Pharaoh to let God's people go. And each one of those plagues was against an Egyptian god. It was like a battle of the gods. As if Yahweh was saying, there, there are no other gods. Let me show you. And then each of the ten plagues, the last of which was the death of the firstborn. God said, I'm going to send an angel throughout Egypt who will take the life of every firstborn except those whose doorposts are stained with the blood of a lamb, the life of a lamb for your life. And those who believed survived put that blood upon the post. And the very next day, Pharaoh let God's people go. And here, one greater than Moses has come for a greater emancipation, for a better exodus. Jesus has arrived. And he has rescued. He's been rescuing. He's been rescuing all along in his ministry. Uh, He has been rescuing people from lies by the preaching of truth. He's been rescuing those on the outside by inviting them in. Think Zacchaeus in Luke 19. And John's gospel tells us of Jesus' most celebrated miracle just prior to the Passover the raising of Lazarus he rescued Lazarus from 4 days in the grave so here at christ at, at israel's most celebrated a holiday, Jesus performed his most celebrated miracle, and he is placed on this donkey, and he is riding, and they put their cloaks up front, and they're, they're pronouncing him king. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, and of course, the critics were there, the Pharisees, who uh, said, teacher, rebuke your disciples, and listen what Jesus said said to them in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Kind of gives new meaning to the phrase dumber than a box of rocks. Right? At least the rocks know who their creator is. But not the religious leaders. (laughs) Man, this has kingship. This has kingship written all over it. I mean, the... Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and and, and, and people can't help but think of another king in their history. When King David wanted to proclaim his son Solomon as heir to the throne, what did he do in 1 Kings 1? Oh, he put him on a donkey and rode him throughout, saying, here is your king. You say, well, one greater than David and one greater than Solomon has come. But more importantly, these verses signal fulfilled prophecy. And in the Hebrew mind, they would have known Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This has kingship written all over it. I mean, that's why... And that's why in verse 30, Jesus says, I want you to get a colt on which no one has ever yet sat. What's that about? It's about this. Kings don't ride used donkeys. That's what that's about. It's sacred. It's for the king. And that's why Jesus used the phrase, the Lord has need of it. That's just not Galilean slang. That's is what scholars call the language of royal levy. Now, in our democracy, we've got this thing called property rights, but that didn't exist in the ancient world of kings and kingdoms. A king wanted something, A wanted a beast of burden, wanted an animal of yours. The king said, that's mine. I'm going to use it now. He had that right. He was king. And Jesus exercises this. The Lord has need of it and and. The humble servants gave him what he needed. This has kingship written all over it. The cloaks on the road. Christ gets the red carpet treatment. People praising God. My goodness. Blessed is the King. Jesus receives this. Oh, yes. It's beautiful. Your king has arrived. That's the point. But what kind of king? That's the second question on your outline, isn't it? What, we, we, we know that he's a king, but what kind of king? And oh, this is where history helps us. Because historians tell us that about the time Jesus entered Jerusalem from the east Another ruler, and it could very well have been the same day. Another ruler entered from the west. Who was that? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea along the Mediterranean Sea there in Israel. He was the governor of this Roman province of Judea. But since it was the Passover... Since Jerusalem was swelling to four, five, six times its normal population, can you imagine our Twin Cities community swelling five, six times? Where would we put all those people? See, Can you think about how Jerusalem was? Pilate comes, but he doesn't come by himself. Oh, no. Because he came in the name of Caesar. He came as Caesar's representative. And so he would have arrived with a thousand well-armed troops, impressively outfitted breastplates, helmet pieces, swords, spears, axe heads, horses, my the banners, Caesar is God, he would have arrived with a massive display of power, which is what he wanted in case there would be any insurrections that holy week. He came in power and in might and proper protocol was that residents of the city would go outside of the city limits and await the arrival of the dignitary. That's how it worked. And they would go out. And they would await the arrival of this VIP. And then, when the VIP came, the dignitary came, the ruler came. Well, then they would all then in mass go back into the city together. Uh, 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 teachers of history call this the perusia, the the appearance, the arrival. And so they would come out, greet the, 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 the general. Do you mean they really liked Pontius Pilate? No, the Jews hated him because he was an oppressor. But they knew enough to know that they'd better get out there and put their smiles on and greet this pagan and bring him back into the city because not to do so would imperil their lives. Roman history tells us of a general who leveled the city because the hospitality committee didn't do their job. So Pilate comes. Pilate comes with this big splash, this imposing show of force from the west. And from the east, peasant rabbi on a donkey, proclaiming himself as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Behold your king. My goodness. He's come in peace. That's why he's on a donkey. He's not on a stallion, he's not riding a chariot. His name is not Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the northern armies, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's wanting the people to understand that he's come in love and mercy. He's come to the city. He's come to the temple. His intentions are to bless them. I have. Co- he comes in peace. But just because he comes in peace doesn't mean he's weak. But they won't have it, will they? Jerusalem won't have it. See, Jerusalem wants a king who will come, not in peace, but in power. Jerusalem wants a king who will show military strength. Jerusalem wants a king who will destroy Rome. Jerusalem wants a king who will restore Israel to political power. So Pontius Pilate enters in confidence and self-assurance and well-armed, and and he, he, he enters the city with contempt for the city because he really doesn't want to be in this armpit of the Middle East, but he's there because it's a rung on the ladder of career success. That's why he's there. That's why he came. Jesus, though, comes with humility, and he sees the city, and the Scripture says... He began to weep. There's only two times in the scriptures that we read of Jesus weeping. One was Lazarus just before he raised him, and here, like a parent whose heart is broken because his child will not listen, because his stubborn child is bent on suicidal self-destruction, Jesus weeps over the city that will reject him. Jesus knows on Sunday what's going to happen on Friday. And he knows what that means for the city. He does. That's why he says what he says in verses 41 and following. Would you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they're hidden from you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. What's he talking about? He's talking about The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by General Titus of the Roman armies. They will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you. They will hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, they will not leave one stone upon another in you. When Titus came, he leveled the city. He leveled it. He wanted to keep the temple because it was an impressive monument, but his soldiers were so angry at the resistance of the zealots, they set the place on fire and leveled it. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. And Jesus says, because you did not know the time of your Visitation, visitation. Circle that word. That's an important word. You know what that word is? That word is a variant, it's a form of the word elder, overseer, uh, episcopos, bishop, shepherd. You hear what Jesus is saying, God's visitation of the world, both in Christ's birth and his entry to Jerusalem. His visitation is not that of an avenger or a conqueror, nor that of Alexander the Great or Octavian, but that of a shepherd, the good shepherd. Jesus is trying to say, Jerusalem, you think your problems Rome. Rome is not your problem. Your problem is bigger than that. Your problem is the prince of the power of the air. Your problem is Satan himself. And Jesus is saying, I am at work attempting to eradicate and destroy the power of Satan. And you can't do that with chariots or catapults. You can't. You can only defeat sin by cross-bearing selfless sacrifice. And if you turn this shepherd away. You are turning away the only one who's keeping you from the wolves and they will eat you. And they did. Robert Capon put it this way. For the world by its own stubborn choice and its own irreversible pride. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. And that is why its messianic overseer weeps. He weeps angry tears, he weeps judgmental tears. They're tears, but they're tears. Tears from the same Messiah who said in Luke thirteen thirty four. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. As long as the world insists on its own oversight, as long as the world refuses to abandon its domestic madness and public folly, The world will never ever on its own find peace. Your king has come. He's here right now. Now you gotta make a decision. You're gonna you're gonna crown me or you're gonna kill me. Make a decision. Make a decision. It leads us to question three, doesn't it? The response. Your king has come. He's a king of peace. Now, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do? Listen. You know, ever since this series started here, we've been trying to say over and over again, as many ways as we can say, church, you matter to God, give him your grudges. You matter to God, give him your shame. You matter to God, give him your anger. You matter to God, give him your worries, give him your anxieties. You matter to God. Here today, in these verses, Jesus turns the table and he asks each of us this question Does God matter to you? The crowd shout, Hosanna. What does that mean? It means, Oh God, save us. From what? From what? What would you like to be saved from? From the Romans? No. No, you've got, you got a worse enemy than that, Jesus says. You know, you need to be... Jesus looks at me in these verses. He says, Randy, I need to save you from you. I need to save you from you. I need to save you from your mythical and imaginary images of who you want me to be. So, So, you know... Am I more excited by the Jesus of my own making than the real Jesus? What kind of a Jesus do we long for? It seems to me we sometimes teeter between one of two extremes, the sentimental Jesus or the legalistic Jesus. Oh, God, save us from the sentimental Jesus. Save us from the aromatherapy Jesus who just wants to calm our emotions and make us feel cuddly and warm. Save us from the Galleria Jesus who promises to take us on a spree where we can get what we think we need. Save us from the legalistic Jesus, the, the district attorney Jesus who goes after those who make my life hard. And Save us from the you're not doing enough Jesus. Right? Your sins are too great for pardon. You don't have enough faith. You don't repent enough. You're never going to be able to continue to the end. You don't have the joy of God's children. You have such a weak hold. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. One of these two extremes usually is where we get misled. And these verses challenge us to abandon our synthetic images of Christ and instead Passionately pursue him for who he is. Listen, if you invite me over to your house, I come to the front door and you say, Randy, you're welcome, but Boltinghouse, you're not. What? I'm going to be confused because they go together. Randy, Boltinghouse, they go together. You, you can't have one without the other. And you say, well, we can't say, well, I'll take the Jesus part, but not the Christ. See? That doesn't work. They go together. They go together. These verses remind me that there's a greater kingdom than the kingdom of Randy, and there's a greater king than King Randy because King Randy is king over a kingdom of one. (laughs) Jesus is Lord of the universe. Too often I want greater control of my world than what I have and what I need is to rest in the greater king. And has there ever been a greater king than the one who would die on behalf of his people? This king who rode into this temple, this king who inspected it, condemned it, and set in motion a countdown to close it, who gave them the red placard and said, it's going away, it's just a matter of time, it's done. That's the bad news. That is bad news. But you know what? The good news is that Jesus replaced the temple of Herod with his own body. And it's a far better temple. Because you see, Jesus' body, in his temple, there are no zones of segregation. In Herod's temple, why, there'd be a place for the Gentiles, a place for the Jews, a place for the men, a place for the women, a place for the priests. No, 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 not in Jesus' body, not in his temple. Oh, no, it's one temple, no barriers, no walls, just us and the king. That's what he's doing, that's what he's about. Jesus, who foretold the broken future of Herod's temple. This king would himself be broken and cursed and left To hang on a tree. He who foretold the temple's ruin would himself be ruined. And in his death and burial and resurrection, Jesus would become the sole meeting place between God and his people. Jesus, the humble king who came in peace to suffer and die for his people so that in him we might meet with God. This is your king. Now do you want him? On one side stands the crowd jeering, baiting, demanding. On the other side stands the carpenter, swollen lips, lumpy eyes, lofty promise. One offers acceptance the other offers a cross. One offers flesh and flesh, the other offers faith. The crowd says follow us. Christ says follow me. The crowd says, Fit in. Christ says, Stand up. The crowd promises to please. Christ promises to save. And God looks at you and he asks, Which will be your choice? Who will be your king? Choose.